0: It's a pleasure to be here. My first uh, acquaintance with this congregation was in 1966 when I taught school with David Kaufman. He brought me here to visit this congregation and his family, and uh, I've always enjoyed the Weavertown congregation. Uh, These sessions we're going to look at is an attempt to refocus our people back on our original concept of what it meant to be a church. Uh, I feel in the last century... Uh, at least the churches I grew up in, shifted uh, from a kingdom concept of the gospel to what I call a save-me concept of the gospel. Uh, I, in teaching high school, I often passed out a piece of paper, asked the high school students to list why they were a Christian, and invariably they said they were Christian because they wanted to go to heaven and didn't want to go to hell. Now, I can't argue with that. I mean, that, that is the ultimate reality. I don't think any of them said... I'm a Christian because I want to help to express and demonstrate the kingdom of God here on earth. I don't think I ever saw that on any paper that any student ever handed in. And so as a boy growing up, that would have been my concept. I would have seen the church probably as a resource group to help get us ready to go to heaven. I think that's what I would have basically had a concept about. And uh, people call me uh, from the billboard, and the uh, most persistent question is, how can I get to heaven? Now, I don't know how you would answer that question. My characteristic answer is you must join the kingdom of heaven now. And that's a new thought to them. They never heard anybody say that, and they don't even know what that kingdom is all about. And that's amazing to me because Jesus never called his gospel anything but the gospel of the kingdom. I mean. I think 147 times he refers to the content of his gospel, and it's always the gospel of the kingdom. Now, a kingdom is a society of people. It's not individuals who are thinking about themselves and whether they're going to go to heaven when they die. That's not what a kingdom is. A kingdom is a society of people. And uh, he began his ministry with a nine-word statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He did not say repent if you want to go to heaven, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Six verses later, after calling his first four disciples, it says he went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. All right? And the two most important things that Jesus said, which, of course, were, was the uh, Beatitudes and the uh, uh, Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, they both be, are, are bookmarked, uh, bookended, I should say, with a kingdom. Uh, It says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thine is the kingdom. That's how that ends. The Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Uh, So uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I I got those two mixed up. But anyway, both of those are bookended with kingdom statements. Uh, And Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Speaking of the end, Jesus said this, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. And so that's what Jesus basically said the gospel was all about. It was about the kingdom. And most of his parables were focused on the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is as a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is as a merchant. The kingdom is as a net. The kingdom is as a mustard seed. The kingdom is as as leaven. These are kingdom statements all through the gospels. And yet when we get to the creed, uh, that everybody recites. Let me read this to you. The Apostles' Creed. I believe, and of course we don't recite this, but this is recited in most Protestant churches. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Wait a minute. That leaves out almost all of the Gospels. You have the birth, and then you have the suffering and death. What about all those verses in between? It's like N.T. Wright said. The Protestants have never known what to do with the Gospels. The only thing in the Gospels that's important to most people is that Jesus was born of a virgin, and they're pretty in particular that you believe that, and you should believe that, and then they skip right to the death. But it's interesting to me that in, Matthew, in John 17, in that great high priestly prayer, Jesus said, Ask his father to glorify him because he said, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, wait a minute. That was before the cross. When people say to me, do you believe in the finished work of Christ? I say, which one? There were two finished works. There was a finished work where he had finished demonstrating what life was supposed to be like on this earth. And then he died on the cross to make it possible for us to live that life. But he said before he went to the cross I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And N.T. Wright says that the gospel, as most people understand it, is an empty cloak. You have the birth, you have the birth, and you have the death and resurrection of Christ. And all this in between, which is all about the kingdom and how it should be lived on this earth, missing. So that's my concern, uh, that we, as an Anabaptist people, actually began with a two-kingdom concept, with a concept of the church as the kingdom of God, and then that sort of shifted. I kind of think in the last century there are a couple of reasons for that. One was the gospel song. Those were written during revivals. Uh, that's what they were written for. They were written for the Methodist revivals. They were written for the Moody Sankey revivals at the end of the century. And they're pretty much all about getting saved and going to heaven, how wonderful heaven's going to be. And that's good. We should sing some of those. But if that's all you're going to sing, which our church is tended to shift in that direction toward singing mostly gospel songs, that's what you're going to be singing about. You're going to be singing about how wonderful it is and how important it is to get saved and go to heaven when you die. And I don't, please, don't leave this meeting with any suggestion that I don't believe that's important. That is. But that's not where Jesus placed his pro- focus on this when he was here on this earth. In fact, I think if you're part of this kingdom, you will, of course, go to heaven and be part of that kingdom uh, at the end. The second thing I think happened was the revival preaching, and a lot of good things happened with revival preaching. I'm not here to put that down, but as I remember, that was basically preaching about people getting saved so they could go to heaven when they die. And then, of course, we had the dispensational premillennialist teaching that tended to relegate the kingdom to the future. And so those three emphases in the last century, I think, tended to shift the emphasis of the kingdom uh, away from the church, and put it on uh, the the emphasis of the gospel on what I call a save-me gospel. And years ago, I read a book called Lectures to Professing Christians by Finney, and I don't remember anything else he said in that book except one statement. He said, if your primary focus, primary focus, now you could have some focus on this, but if your primary focus is to get to heaven when you die, you will surely go, I'm, I'm sorry, if your primary focus in life is to escape hell, you shall surely go there. He that shall save his life shall lose it. And looking back, I grew up with about 30 boys my age, give or take two or three years, and I don't know of only one that I would say is really following Christ. The rest of them, I think, that save me gospel was not sufficient. It's too far out there for boys who are struggling with present temptations to be living for an event that probably for most of them is going to happen 50, 60 years from now. They, we need, we need a, a concept of life that, that uh, inspires us in the present, and the kingdom certainly does that. <clears throat> Jesus actually ended his ministry talking about the kingdom. And Jesus went about, this is Acts 1, verse 3, and Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, this is right before he ascended, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he spent his last 40 days talking about. It's just a little bit... <laughs> a mystery to me how the emphasis shifted when there's so much about this subject in the Bible. So uh, the kingdom in most teaching was either relegated to the future with your dispensationalists or it was made into a carnal kingdom like John Calvin wanted to make it. So why did Jesus focus his message on the kingdom of God? Because that was God's original plan. Right in Genesis 1, it says, I made man to have dominion. Now, not some future goal. He put man on this earth to express the rule of God. Let them have dominion, okay? Uh, <clears throat> if you go to uh, Exodus 19, you shall find the first reference to the kingdom. Why don't you turn to that? Exodus 19, we'll find the first reference to the kingdom in the, in the uh, Bible, <coughs> And this is to Israel. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I'm going to quote from the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Ye are a chosen generation. Ye are a royal priesthood. Notice the, what, how, the parallel here. Ye are a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That was always God's purpose. In the Old Testament, he, he called out a nation to demonstrate to the nations what a nation, what a society of people looked like whose God is the Lord. And the Queen of Sheba came to visit one time at a time when I don't think that kingdom under Solomon, we find out, had its great problems. So it wasn't a perfect kingdom by any means. But she visited this kingdom, and she said, there is no people on this earth that are so blessed that have such just laws and whose people experience such well-being. In fact, this is twice as good as what I was told before I came to this country. That's what God wanted in the Old Testament. And now I think what he wants is he wants a demonstration of the society he always intended before the fall. I think Jesus has restored us to the point where we can express those original ideals, marriages that are permanent, people that don't have to get involved in government and the use of force. There was no force needed before the fall. People who uh, keep their word. They don't have to swear oaths. People who don't accumulate wealth. They share their wealth. In fact, (laughs) when people call from the billboard and they ask me uh, to explain the gospel and I start talking about the kingdom, I tell them they need to join the kingdom. Then they say, well, what's that? And I begin to describe that. They say, I bet you voted for Bernie Sanders. Yeah. No, I mean, no. (laughs) But yes, he represents, and all the people like him, and all the socialists, and all the communists, and all the people that have worked on these ideals... We carry these in our heart. We want a just society. We would like to have a society where everybody's treated right and wealth is shared and and nobody has any needs. Bernie Sanders and all the people like him only say to me, this is in the human heart. Everybody wants this. But the problem is, those people will impose it by force. And that has always turned into a nightmare. Always. In the kingdom of heaven... The problem of selfishness is dealt with. And by the way, if you want a synonym for sin, that is what it is. It's selfishness. On the billboard line, they used to ask me, uh, would you define sin? And we get into big theological discussions. And I finally decided, look, I need a word that actually describes sin in a way that they understand it. And I came to the conclusion that selfishness is a synonym for sin. And if I tell them that, they understand that. And they understand that it causes all our problems. Jesus has done something about that. And now these ideals, if we would focus on them. You know, the Bible says that everything is focused on knowledge. If we don't understand what we're talking about here, we're not going to pursue it. I mean, you can only, somebody has said, let me, uh, I have a quote here somewhere that I would like to read. How is, how's this go? It says, well, I don't have my act together. What we don't know, we can't understand. What we don't understand, we can't believe. What we don't believe, we can't receive. And what we don't perceive, we can't possess. So unless we understand this, we're not going to practice what God wants us to practice. And that's why this is such a burden on my heart that our people would get back to focusing on something larger than themselves, the kingdom of God, which we were originally created to focus on. And Jesus came to to, uh, initiate the kingdom of heaven on this earth. Anyway, so this is in every heart. When I start... Talking about the kingdom, and I, uh, this is my favorite subject when they call from the billboard, because they've never heard this. In fact, I've heard many evangelicals tell me, if I had been taught that, that that's what Christianity was, and I could have seen that demonstrated in the church where I was, I would still be a Christian. But they were taught the save me gospel. And they were frightened constantly by hellfire. And we should have be concerned about that. I'm not minimizing that. But that was the only motivation they heard. That was the only message they heard. And they were finally turned off and left. If they'd have heard the kingdom, it would have given them a, a vision. It would have given them a cause. It would have given them a concept of how life should be and why. All right. So this was God's original purpose. He, uh, he, he originally wanted that. Now, I have to explain something. I think part of the reasons why this was rejected, especially by the premillennialists, is they saw the church was not perfect. And when they read about what God wanted, they saw a perfect kingdom coming in the future, as they saw it at least. And so they, did, they were a little bit shy about calling the church the kingdom of God. In fact, I worked with a man in the CLP office uh, who was probably the best evangelist our church had and did far more for the church than I will ever do. And he was a wonderful person, but he would never call the church anything synonymous with the kingdom. This was the church age. The kingdom was coming. And it took me a long time to realize the reason why he was so insistent on that is he saw the church was not a perfect representation of the kingdom. It's not the absolute kingdom. Jesus died to purify the church. That kingdom will not need to be purified. That will be perfect. That will be absolute. The church is a mediatorial kingdom mediating the the beauties and ideals and values of the kingdom, not perfectly, but credibly. Because when we fail, we will repent, and we will work on these ideals And there might not be a perfect picture given, but it will be a credible picture. It'll be a a good enough picture people can see what that original society was supposed to be and what it can be (laughs) restored in Christ. And one of the reasons why I think this is so terribly important (laughs) is because I think the people take the church for granted. And so we have all kinds of schisms that happen, and people, they bring worldliness in, and they do this, and they do that, and they defile the church, and they split the church, and they get up parties in the church, and all this tension and stuff that goes on if they really understood that this is God's focus and he wants, He looks at the potential of this congregation and he's hoping that you see what he sees and you work as hard as you should work to make that an ideal and not to do anything, to blemish or cause drift or cause division, but work together to demonstrate this beautiful ideal to the world. And so our late pastor Lynn Martin used to say, you be careful how you treat the church. The church is the apple of God's eye. There is nothing on this earth that he values more than the church. And if you defile the church or in any way cause problems in the church, that's a, an insult to God himself because this is, where his, this is his inheritance. Ephesians chapter one talks about our inheritance and then it talks about his inheritance. Paul says, I'm praying that you will see the hope of his inheritance. He looks at this little group as jealously as any person who ever inherited a piece of property and saw all the potential and worked hard to make that potential realized. That's how God looks at the church. And so, this is why this is such a passion with me. It's time for us to get our minds off of ourselves, it's time for us to get our minds off of everything but the church and put our emphasis there. All right. <clears throat> well, this was the theme of the Old Testament. I would like for you to look at a couple passages as to what kind of vision God had for that nation, that society of redeemed people. Uh, Would you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4? He's calling them to keep his covenant. Verse 6. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. See, the nations are looking on. The world is looking on. Which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great? Who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous, as all this law which I set before you this day? Another passage, just stay in Deuteronomy and turn over to 26. Verses 17 to 19. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people. Remember that verse in Peter? Peculiar people? I, I think there are just tremendous parallels with these Old Testament references to what God wants in his church. Now, where was I? Uh, to keep to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, underlined all there, and to make thee high above all nations, which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor, that thou mayest be a holy nation unto the Lord thy God, as he hath spoken. One more. Would you turn back to 15? We sort of missed that one. Chapter 15, verses 4 to 6. We're we're, uh, jumping in in the middle of verse 4. It says that nation, by the way, there'll be no poor among them. And that's interesting. Uh, When we have Acts uh, 4 and Acts 2, it talks about there were no poor. They they sold their possessions and they equaled things out. Anyway, it says, For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Only, only. If thou carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day, for the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow, and thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. That was God's vision. They never completely realized that, and we're often pretty critical of the children of Israel, but look at us. Let's look at us, okay? It must be a nation holy. Committed to God. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about the word worship. I don't have a whiteboard here, uh, but I will tomorrow night maybe. The word worship, are you are you aware of what that word means? It's the old English word W-O-R-T-H, worth ship. Now, what that word is saying, so worship is a contraction. There should you could put an apostrophe in there after R. Worship. It, it's, it doesn't have to do with, uh, primarily with morals. You see, I think a lot of our problem is we tend to define Christianity in terms of morals. Now, morals has to do with what's right and what's wrong, and they are important. Don't go away and say, I said they weren't. They are very important. Christians don't lie. They don't fornicate. They don't steal. They don't kill. They don't uh, uh, commit adultery. They don't do any of those awful things. But after you've talked about morals, you still haven't talked about worship. Worship has to do with values. Now we're talking about what is most important. We're not talking about what's right and wrong. We're talking about what is most important. If you would ask most people who call themselves Christians, they would say that Jesus is the most important thing in their life. Now really, if you want to know what the most important thing in your life is, go ask your wife, ask your children, ask the people who work with you, ask your friends, what is it? that I get the most passionate and excited about. And for most people, that isn't Jesus. It's their work. It's their business. It's their vacation. It's their hobbies. It's their recreation. It's their leisure time activities. Judging by how excited they get. Were you ever in a group of people where there was a discussion going on, there was somebody sitting back in the corner not saying anything until somebody mentioned some subject? fishing. And that person became alive. And all of a sudden you realize he could talk. And he had stories. And he just was so excited everybody had to stop and listen to him for a long time because he was excited about fishing. He was worshiping fishing. That was the number one value in his life. And we need to get to the place where we see the church and Christ and the gospel as the number one thing in our life. And it'll be related to our number one passion. Go listen to yourself talk. Go listen to your passion. And you'll know what you're worshiping. It's what is the most worth-ship to you. And it's interesting to me that Hebrews chapter 11 says almost nothing about morals. In fact, some of the people in the, that passage had some real moral lapses. That chapter's all about Values. And it's the faith chapter. Could I suggest to you that your faith is dependent on the thing you value most? Is it the unseen world or the seen world? That's what that chapter is about. And the the, the most tremendous value statement in that chapter, probably the greatest value statement anybody ever made, is when it says Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ, something I would not want in the flesh, of more value than the treasures of Egypt. That is quite a value statement. So, that was the theme of the Old Testament. The kingdom of God. Deuteronomy 28.14 says, Don't you veer to the right or to the left. Be careful to observe all that God has said. Make that your focus, that you will completely and wholeheartedly Please God. By the way, there's a difference between pleasing God and obeying God. If you go away and you tell your children, oh, I'd like for you to wash the dishes and I'd like for you to uh, clean up your bedroom, and when I come home from town, I'm going to see if you did what I said. And they did that. that. That would be obedience. But if, while you were in town, the children said, Look, I heard Dad say that the garden needed weeding. Oh, it's a hot day, and I hate to weed but I want to see a smile on dad's face when he comes home. So we're going to weed the garden, in addition to everything else he told us. You know, David did that one time. The Lord said, uh, David said he wanted to build a temple. And Nathan said, well, go ahead and build the temple. And then he came the next day and he said, no, wait a minute. God says don't build the temple. You're a bloody man. But David, did I ever tell anybody I wanted the temple? Go look at God's, he gave commands, specific commands, for a tabernacle, a tent, and God was perfectly happy with that. But David wanted to do something to please God. And so God says, David, I never said I wanted a temple. I am so pleased, even though I'm not going to let you build it, I am so pleased that you wanted to build me a temple, and I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build me one, but I'm going to build you one. And that's where he made the promise that David would always have Somebody's sitting on the throne of Israel from his family. That's where that promise was given, when David just poured out his devotion to God to please him. And so that, that's really the purpose of these messages, to get us to focus on the kingdom of heaven with enthusiasm and passion and value to make it the number one thing in our life so we truly are worshiping what we say we worship. <clears throat> All right. So that was the theme of the Old Testament. The theme of the gospel, we've already started to allude to it. What did John the Baptist preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message. What did uh, uh, Philip preach when he went down there to Samaria? He preached the kingdom of God. And I want you to turn to uh, some passages in relation to Paul. Would you turn to Acts 9, 19, verse 8? I guess I feel so passionate about this because I never heard a sermon on this the whole time I was growing up. I never heard a sermon on the kingdom of God. It was all save me gospel preaching. Now, maybe my church was unusual, and I'm not trying to be critical. They did the best they could, and they did a lot of good. Acts 19, verse 8. Here we have Paul uh, in the synagogue of Ephesus, and it says he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading things concerning the kingdom of God. That was his message. Okay? Would you turn, it, uh, turn over to 20? He's taking his leave of the Ephesian elders here in verse 25. And he says, "Now And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. So that was his message. Let's go to the end of the book. What was he preaching at the end? Go the whole way to the end. Acts 28. Verse 23. The Jewish elders came to meet him when he got to Rome. And it says, and when they had appointed him a day, in verse 23, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning until evening. And now let's go to the last two verses. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So this was the message now, where does personal salvation come into this? It's very important, but it's a means to an end. God can't have a redeemed people unless He has redeemed individuals. So, this is very important, but it's not an end in itself, it's a means to an end. If you make it an end in itself, according to Finney, you'll lose it. It's a means to an end. He wants a society of redeemed people, and that can't happen until he redeems individuals. So there needs to be a genuine new birth, and we're going to be talking about that tomorrow night. There needs to be a genuine change in our lives, and we need to become children of God with a number one priority to to focus on him and his kingdom, and everything else become a means to that end, including our own personal salvation. All right? You say, well... How do you know that this is a present reality? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 9, at Mark 9, verse 1, he said there's some people standing here that will not die until they see the kingdom come in power. What do you think that was? I believe it was Pentecost. And so I think very clearly God wants people uh, to be expressing his kingdom. All right. Uh, I want you to turn to Ephesians now for just a little bit. Now before I do that, I want you to turn to Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, I want you to turn to Acts 19. I wanted to point out one thing yet before we turn to Ephesians. Acts 19. Now, if I had a chalkboard here, I would write the word ekklesia up here, which we all know is the word used for church in the New Testament. And if you ask most people what that term means, now I'm not a Greek scholar by any means. I tell people I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. The little Greek runs a restaurant, and the little Hebrew runs a clothing store. So that's my experience with Greek and Hebrew. But anyway, I use the lexicons like everybody does. But if you check carefully, you will find that this word ekklesia is not just what you would get from most people. They would say it's a called out group of people, and it is that. But called out to do what? Just to sit here and enjoy each other? The word ecclesia, according to uh, G. Campbell Morgan, and I tried to study this word myself, it means called out to govern. And I want to show you where it is used that way in the New Testament. Now, I have you in Acts 19. Would you turn to look there in Acts 19? This is where the Ephesians got in an uproar about Paul's preaching. And for two solid hours, they shouted, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the town clerk comes on the scene. He says, Wait a minute. We're going to be in trouble here for all this carrying on. And then he tells them this in verse 39. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. The word there is ecclesia. An ecclesia is a governing body. The church is to be a governing body, first of all, to bring God's government to bear on our lives, and then to demonstrate that government, that beautiful government, to the world. It's to be a governing body. Uh, What would you say if you went to Washington, D.C., and Congress was dismissing, and you said, well, what happened in Congress today? And they would say, oh, we just had a wonderful time together. We encouraged each other. We had a fellowship meal, and it just was a wonderful day. We spent it together, and I'm so encouraged because I spent the day in Congress. Unfortunately, maybe that is more what happens. But anyway, (laughs) you would say, well, that's not why you were there. You were there to make laws. You were there to govern. That's what the church is. It's a body of people that are trying to bring the government of God to bear in all kinds of practical ways upon our lives so that our lives are in line with His reality that He has always wanted humans to express. That's what we're here for. And so, having said that, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'd love to discuss this whole passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So Paul tells the tremendous blessing that God has bestowed upon us. God chose us, and I'd love to talk a long time about that predestination. Christ redeemed us, and he tells us what all this tremendous reality is involved in that. And then the Holy Spirit sealed, sealed us. So it's sort of like a song. Uh, God chose for, and it tells us why it doesn't say he chose us to get us to heaven which is what most people would say it says he chose us so we can display the glory of his grace and then Christ redeemed us so we can express the glory of his grace and then the Holy Spirit seals us so we can express the glory of his grace that's what it's all about to put, on, put God's grace on display in fact it's sort of a song it has three stanzas God chose so the glory of his grace would be displayed. Christ redeemed so the glory of his grace could be displayed. The Holy Spirit sealed so the glory of his grace could be displayed. There's, by the way, there's nothing said in this whole book about anybody going to heaven when they die. In fact, not in, really in the epistles much at all. It's all about the kingdom. It's all about the church. It's all about what God's people should be expressing. And then Paul, just, be, just to be sure they don't miss it. He says in verse 15, wherefore, because of this tremendous resource of God's grace, and it's unlimited, <laughs> let me quote another verse. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting this clock. Uh, my favorite verse in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians 9 8. Listen to this. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always oh, by the way, the word abound means no limits. God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Now, if I had written that, people would say I always knew that John Martin had an overactive imagination. It can't be that good. But that's the Bible. And here in Ephesians, it tells us in verse 3 that he has opened unto us all the riches of God in the heavenly realm. That's the kind of resources he's given to this group of people. That's the kind of resources Weavertown Mennonite Church has been given. All the resources in heaven. God's unlimited grace, his unlimited wisdom, his unlimited power, his unlimited uh, forgiveness, all those unlimited qualities like the verse I quoted made available to us. There's no excuse for us not to demonstrate the kingdom of God in a powerful way. And so Paul is saying, he's concluding here with a prayer, wherefore, because of all that tremendous resource, I'm going to pray for you, that you'll see it. Like I said, unless you are thinking the way we're talking here tonight, this will never happen. Everything is based on knowledge. It's based on how we understand what God wants and then how we respond to it. And so Paul is praying here. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what he's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you will see what God sees. I'm praying that you'll see what he sees at Weavertown, Mennonite Church. OK? It's his inheritance. This is God's inheritance. That should humble us. That should strike us with awe. That give, should give us a sense of high responsibility to make this the most beautiful example of the kingdom of God that we possibly can and learn as much as we possibly can, and I hope we can in the next few nights, as to some things that the world should see when they're looking at us. Yes? Wonderful. Thank you, Brother Aaron. This is, (laughs) I have a whole sermon I preach on this passage, and I get so excited. I remember when I first read this, I was sitting in the Millwood Bible School in the back somewhere, and I was glancing down through this, and I almost felt like I was levitating off of my seat. I was so excited, and I've been excited ever since. Okay, let's keep reading. And he's praying that they will see what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, and then he goes into this big description as to how pow- much power that is. It's, it's what raised Christ from the dead, set him up, above all principalities and powers and so on. But it's those last verses that I want to look at. And have put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And what is the church? The church is his body, the fullness of of him that fills everything. You know, the German. What's the German? That is saying that is saying from the German to English, he fills everyone with everything. Yeah, it, and it, it's an amazing statement. But it says the church. Don't you claim this for yourself individually? See, there's so much individualism that somehow we could just. I talked to a lot of people, I don't have any time for the church, I'm going to go out on the mountain, I'll just worship God. Well, no, 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 no. That's like saying I'm going to play professional baseball, but I really don't ever plan to join any team. You won't play professional baseball either. And I'm not sure you'll be a Christian either. If you focus on the means rather than the ends. Am I making myself, if you understood what I just said, raise your hand. I am so, so determined to get this point across because it's so clear here. And he said, so if you want to experience what we've been talking about tonight, you have to be part of the church. It's a corporate experience. It's not an individual experience. You can experience the Holy Spirit individually. You can experience some of Christ individually. But if you want to experience the fullness of God, it's in the church. And it's for people who plugged into the church and have given the church every ounce of their energy and every ounce of their understanding and intelligence and, and uh, behavior. This is tremendous. I conclude with an illustration. I'm past my time. In 1987, the Soviet Union celebrated the 70th anniversary of communism and they marched their troops down through the streets, and they marched their weapons down through the streets, and they had a great show how powerful communism was. 1987. 70 years. In 1988, communism in the Soviet Union was dead. It took one year for it to completely disintegrate. But in 1988, the Russian Christian Church celebrated its 1,000th anniversary unfortunately it was not the greatest church representation oh where are kings and empires now of all that went and came but lord thy church is praying yet a thousand years the same rise up O oh men of god and make her great that's my word to you shall we pray father we thank you this evening for the church will always be when everything else goes and comes when all those little systems that we put so much energy into have their day and are are finished and we leave this earth your church will go on help us to get more excited about the church than anything else in this temporal world bless this congregation help them lord in, in these few sessions we have to get a renewed passion and dedication and loyalty to the church and do everything they possibly can to make this a beautiful example, and a powerful testimony of what you always had in mind for the human race and show what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.